I'm Stephen Becker. I served 26 years as a state district court judge at Reno County, Kansas. After my retirement from the bench, I served three terms in the Kansas legislature. I'm Beth White. I have a passion for criminal justice and spent many years working for parole services, helping individuals reintegrate into society. And this is Cleared. Good evening, Dad. How you doing, Beth? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm good. good. You want to know a reason why I am good today? Talk to me. It's because of our guest who has agreed to come back, Mr. Jim McCloskey. I know. I was... Also on the line. Good evening, Jim. Hi, Beth and Steve. How are you guys? We, are, good... we are so pleased you returned for another go-around. Yes. And if you yeah. haven't listened yet, uh, our last episode... Uh, Jim was so gracious to go over his story and the formation of Centurion Ministries, the first uh, really organization to help right wrongful convictions, and Jim founded that. So we're very, very honored to hear his story straight from him. He has a wonderful, wonderful book we talked about called When the Truth is All You Have, and Jim has so graciously agreed to come back today to talk about some of the causes for wrongful convictions. We've talked a lot um, on our individual episodes with individuals about what was the leading factors behind their wrongful convictions, but this time we have an expert here with us to talk about it. And I think what we've done uh, for today's episode is uh, we've identified um, like six causes of wrongful convictions, and uh, Jim devoted uh, a portion of his book um, to this issue and identifying the causes. And before we get started, I did want to mention one thing. I am currently reading a book called The Guardians by by John Grisham. (laughs) And I open the book, and there on the page, it says, to James McCloskey, the exonerator. And and the book is, this is the assigned reading for our listeners continues to grow. (laughs) So I'm, I'm talking about John Grisham's The Guardians. It is a fictional novel, but it is based upon Jim's uh, Centurion Ministries. So... People, put it on your list. Uh, You'll want to read this too. Okay, uh, back to the causes. Um, As I indicated, Jim devoted a portion of his book to this issue. And Jim, I think I'd like you to start us off. The first, your first paragraph in this section of your book um, 
deals with uh, a system that does not want to change. How do you identify that as a cause of wrongful convictions? Well, I'm not sure it's a cause. It's, it's certainly an after effect. Okay. Um, and by that, I mean, when, when new evidence, a new compelling or reliable, credible information or evidence is brought to the attention of the powers to be, in other words, the police and the prosecutors, and even the local county judge who might be, uh, who might be, uh, whose court might uh, be asked to review this new evidence of actual innocence on the conviction that took place in that jurisdiction years and years before. Those authorities, by and large, now listen, there's, there's all kinds of exceptions, and it's the grip, the vice-like grip on these wrongful convictions by the powers to be who have had a hand in this wrongful conviction years before, um, you know, starting to loosen somewhat. We can we can get into that, but there is a uh, there is a of the we've been fortunate enough to to free sixty six different men and women, uh, all of whom were serving life or death sentences for the crimes of others. And of those 66, we did eventually secure cooperation with the local prosecutor's office. Now, a number of them were DNA, uh, were DNA cases, uh, but uh, half of them were not. And, uh, and so, but the other 66 minus 12, what's that, 54, the other 54 cases where we eventually succeeded after many years of work on each one, uh, they fought us tooth and nail. They don't, they, by and large, people don't like to be uh, told that they were wrong, especially in such a significant, important situation as sending an innocent person to prison for the rest of his or her life or or to death row. They don't want to admit that they're wrong. They hold on to them. They, 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 they conjure up all kinds of, of uh, arguments in the face of compelling evidence of, of innocence. And it's, I guess you could say, generally speaking, it's human nature. I don't want to be proven wrong. And if you're a public figure, uh, you might think it's embarrassing to your office or um, humiliating. Or if you're an elected district attorney and you're running for office and there's uh, evidence, new evidence of, a, of an actual uh, a wrongful conviction, is presented to you and or the public through the media. Um, you're afraid it might uh, it might take the electorate against you, so you you fight it. Uh, sure, yeah, and and it's you know I think when you talk about it's human nature, um, I think it has to do also with just this whole idea of closure. You know, we went through it all, we did it all right. It's over. We're not going to pull that bandaid off of the wound. And uh, well, you know, that, that, that's 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 certainly part of it. They they have enough they have enough on their plate with current cases, especially in big cities. I mean, absolutely. You take you, you take Philadelphia, where I'm from, and that's a war zone down there. I mean, there is so many uh, so much violence, and the homicide rate is skyrocketing, and and the carjackings and armed robberies, and it's unbelievable. So the, the homicide, I, I actually feel sorry for the homicide guys because 
every time I wake up in the morning and turn my Philadelphia news channel on, there's another shooting, mostly fatal shootings. It's it's unbelievable. So they got they have more than their hands full. And then when we come along uh, with a, a case that, that they thought was solved and cleared and convicted, convicted uh, 25 years later, uh, that's they don't want to hear about that. They got enough on their plate. Well, and I hate to be a negative Nancy on this, but I've, I've, we've only done, I think this will be our eighth episode, and I feel like in every single one of these episodes, ego has been a huge part on why the district attorney or the judges aren't willing to open it either. I mean, I think of Bob Macy keeping his stats on his desk of his convictions and the percentage of um, capital cases he won and just just that mentality that this is something you win opposed to finding justice in general, yeah, I think well, is alarming. He, you're talking about the, the former DA of Oklahoma City, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, he was... He was, he was the extreme... He was the extreme of of, of holding on and, and yeah. fighting tooth and nail to, to rebut any possibility of a wrongful conviction taking place in his jurisdiction, especially one that took place during his, I don't know, what, 30 years of, of being the DA. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, it, it all it all fits in together in the same puzzle. Yeah. You go uh, and, and uh, not wanting to you're wrong and afraid of being embarrassed and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it, and what, what you're pointing out, too, is the system is stacked against going back to a to reopen a trial. And it it brings to uh, it brings to mind once again. I have to go back to John Grisham. Uh, he stated, I believe, in the uh, foreword of your book, he stated it's easy to convict an innocent person. It is virtually impossible to exonerate one, wrong, a wrongfully convicted. And, well, uh, and I think it's because of that systemic. Um, I wouldn't opposition say to yeah. change. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's virtually impossible because we've done it numerous. You know, I just before uh, this afternoon, I just uh, double checked the uh, the National Exo- Registry of Exonerations, and they're all, they're close to three thousand uh, exonerations since nineteen eighty nine that they've been able to chronicle. Wow! But it's very hard. Yeah, it's very hard to undo a, a, a wrongful conviction. It take in our experience, and our, I think our experience is is uh, is indicative of what other people, other innocent projects go through. Once we begin a case, and this is based empirically on on the sixty six cases, once we have vetted the case and begin our investigation, it takes anywhere from five to ten years to undo that conviction sometimes 15 years twice 20 years uh miraculously and it was a miracle two of the 66 cases happened both happened to be dallas cases uh, were freed within the within 15 months of us beginning the case oh wow the stars oh my god jeez well now the stars were aligned in those two cases believe me one of the two cases the district attorney's conviction integrity unit agreed with us. Once you have a district attorney's office in more modern years, a conviction integrity unit on your side, agreeing with you after they've, after you've asked them to take a look at this old conviction and they have, and they agree that's a bad conviction. Once they join you, 
the Red Sea opens up. Yeah, yes. Because the courts, if the DA says it's a wrongful conviction, then by God, it must be a wrongful conviction. But if those who are uh, uh, working on behalf of the convicted person say that, it's looked upon with uh, some trepidation yeah. and uh, skepticism. Let's get into some of the more specific uh, causes that we've identified. Um, and I, I have a list. I wrote them down, and I think the first two, uh, we really can't talk about the first one without getting into the second one. The first one on my list is official misconduct, and the second is perjury. And uh, I know in the uh, cases that Beth and I have profiled on previous episodes, we've gotten into this, um, where official misconduct, uh, it's... It, it, rampant? It's rampant. Well, it, it, it comments, it, it, Jim. It, no, I, I'm happy to, to talk about that. And I have a lot to say about that. But before I do, okay. I, again, I don't want to... I don't want to take you off script, Steve, but I'm going to do it in, in this particular instance because um, when a defendant is sitting in the dock, let's say he's an innocent, he or she's an innocent person, and now the trial is, is beginning, um, you have to people have to realize that all of these we we've never encountered all of the defendants are indigent people. They don't have any money. They're at the mercy of the system. Therefore. Uh, they get, you know, in a number of cases, they get inept, inexperienced, uh, court-appointed trial lawyers who don't who don't know what they're doing. They're in over their heads. They don't have any money or very little money, I should say, to hire uh, forensic experts or to hire investigators to go out and hit the streets and and talk to witnesses. Um, so because they're indigent. The scales of justice at the get-go are heavily skewed and favored uh, for the prosecution, and they have all the resources in the world. They have investigators. They can get forensic experts. They can do. They can employ any kind of asset they want to try and build their case against the defendant. Secondly, that's indi- defendants are indigenous. Secondly, there is a presumption of guilt. Uh, especially if that defendant is a person of color sitting in a dock and has a white, largely, if not universal, white jury. They will, I think people believe that where there's smoke, there's fire. And sure, because, of the, because of the public's general naivete, they would believe, and I was there, Steve, that was me before I started this work when I was, you know, 40 years old. That's what I believe, that the police, surely the police and the prosecutors would never bring anybody to the bar of justice. He, uh, must, he must have done something or he, he wouldn't might, be yeah, here. He might, oh, he must have done what he's there for. Um, and they also uh, favor the, 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 the police witnesses. They believe the police witnesses. And so there's a presumption of guilt that the defending lawyers have to fight through and overcome during the course of the trial and then uh so i just wanted to i wanted to point out those those two uh, qualities leading up to the trial certainly and we touched on this in our last episode um 
I was when I was on the bench. I was young. I had been practicing uh, law. I think five and a half years uh, before I was appointed to the bench. And oh, Jim, I was so naive. And right. and I yeah. would I would sit on the bench thinking early in my career thinking police officers don't lie. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, they're yeah. they're yeah they they don't lie and and uh, I think. I mentioned last episode, particularly not on not on a little trivial misdemeanor case. They're not going to lie, and about you know about the reason for the stop, you know the traffic stop and right. and things right. like that. But you know, as I went on in my career, and and uh, I learned that uh, God, that's when I started to recognize how naive I was. Exactly. Um, and, and now, but see, you're sitting on the bench for a number of years before the scales come off your eyes and you, you begin to see things. Exactly. You, you begin to understand it. But if you're sitting on the jury, you don't have any experience in the criminal justice system. By and large, you don't have any experience with law enforcement to begin with. You're just an average, hardworking uh, Joe or Jane uh, who has never been in a courtroom before. Now, all of a sudden, you're sitting on a jury of a murder trial. Yeah, and you 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 are naive, you are uninformed and naive about what really goes on in the investigation and within the prosecutor's office to put their case together to produce uh, and these instances of false convictions of which there are many 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 in the United States. Um, uh, you know, you're, you you tend you, you give the benefit of the doubt if there is any doubt to the police officers and the prosecution over and against the, the, the defendant. Um, but I, let me get, let me talk about, get back to the root of your, of your question, Steve, and that is this prosecutorial misconduct. It's commonly called. Yes. Practically not everyone, but I would say a good 75% of our cases, uh, that we've completed, um, of the 66, if you will, uh, the, the, the other cases are are in, in process. Uh, but prosecutorial misconduct is uh, one of the main causes of wrongful convictions. Now, let's break that down. What do we mean by prosecutorial misconduct? There are, in my view, there are three levels or three kinds, three types of it. One is that um, they have evidence that goes to the innocence of the defendant, but they suppress it. They hide it. It's exculpatory. If if the if it was known by the defense, which it's not, because it's hidden, it's buried within the pro, either the prosecutor files or the police files, uh, sometimes both, uh, and not revealed to the defendant. Then the defendant is 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 he's got one hand tied behind his back. Yeah, and uh, so the, and let's but, 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 let me interject here. Let me interject yeah. here. The law yeah. requires them. Yes. The law yes. requires the prosecution to turn over to the defense any exculpatory evidence they might find in their investigation. To avoid a Brady violation, we go That's over this right. every episode. It's so yeah, prevalent. It, right. It's Brady material, and Brady, I think, was 
that goes back to the early 1960s when that was Supreme Court ruled on, on Brady. So, yes, that's a good point, Steve and Beth. It's legally, it's illegal to hide it. It's, 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 it must be, it's legal by the law. Uh, the prosecutors must, sh must share this, what we call exculpatory or favorable information to the defendant that can go to his or her innocence. Or uh, another part of that is that they might uh, put their witnesses on the stand and these witnesses are lying and, and they know that they're lying. Exactly. And they hide that. Um, so, you know, that's that's one suppression of, 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 uh, of favorable evidence of innocence and it comes in all all kind all forms um you know just the one quick example which mostly maybe a lot of people know about i don't know if you remember that duke lacrosse case back in durham north carolina yep years yes. ago yeah it was a it was a national case the district attorney the elected da who was also also the pro the, the 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 case prosecutor he had dna evidence that excluded the three uh, the three men. He hid that from the defense. Yep. And, was it like I think it was twelve DNA samples? Did they some some crazy well, number however, they were able to recover? However, well, yeah, it was it was a, a, a ton of DNA evidence. But the point is, he had that he had those results that cleared the uh, the, the the arrestees, and he never revealed that until it finally came came out. But this we see often. And I think now, that goes another, to what you were saying earlier too. I think if my memory serves me right, one of the one of the thought main reasons behind that was it was an election year for him. It was. It wasn't you're right. Exactly. Now also prosecutors make secret deals with common criminals. People who are in prison or in jail awaiting trial or who are in some kind of serious trouble with the law, the prosecutors will use them as star witnesses against the defendant to usually say one of two things. Uh, well, the, the main thing is a jailhouse confession that the, 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 the criminal in jail will come forward and tell the jury that the defendant, when I was in jail, when he was in jail with me, when we were together, he confessed the crime. And then the the the, uh, the criminal, the jailhouse confession witness for the prosecution will cite chapter and verse as to what the defendant told him. So it's natural for the jury to say to themselves, well, how did he have this information unless, yeah. unless the uh, defendant did the yeah. yeah, he had to have been when guilty. Fact, he had to get all these facts fact, from. Yeah. When, when in fact, the police or the prosecutor will feed the information to the jailhouse convict as their primary witness so that they can make them seem more credible to the to the jury. Um, and it's yeah. And and there's examples. I think we touched on it last week or the last episode, but there are some jail inmates that I think I use the term professional snitch where they have a record of doing this. They, they spend almost all their time in prisons and whenever they're in a different prison or something, they find some way to say, Hey, I heard the guy confess. Right. Right. Yeah. We have in my book <laughs> of the, we, I cite, a num I, I profile 
a number of a, a handful of our cases, and in practically every one of those cases, Joyce Ann Brown in Dallas, Ben Spencer in Dallas, Curry Max Cook in Tyler, Texas, De Los Santos in Newark, New Jersey, um, Ellen Reasonover, a woman in St. Louis. They were all the defendants. They were victims of jailhouse confession, false testimony. It happens. It happens often across the country. And so my point being that uh, this is this is perjury that's suborned by the DA and by um, uh, the, the the police as well. My very first case, and again. I outline this is this this is where the book starts out. My very first case, Mr. De Los Santos was an inmate at Trenton State Prison doing life for murder, a Newark, New Jersey murder. And I met him as a student chaplain. Now I'm I'm 37, 38 years old. I've never been involved in the criminal justice system. But that case was a baptism of fire for me. I eventually took a year off and worked for his behalf, and we, we were able to exonerate him after two and a half years. But the star witness against him, this is one prime example that I think your 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 audience should should know about because it's also common. The star witness against Mr. De Los Santos was a jailhouse, a career criminal. Now, when he testified, he testified that he's never before ever testified in any other case, but he is in this case because the defendant confessed the crime to him. He thought it was a terrible thing that he did. So he's going to come and tell the jury about the confession. That's why I'm coming forward. He was when, just a good fact, citizen coming forward. Yeah, doing his exactly. part. Yeah. Yes. Now, so as part of the direct testimony by the trial prosecutor, Kevin Kelly, he asked the, the, the witness, have you ever testified in another trial, or are you an informant? Do you have any informant uh, history? He said, no, never. Well, we were given access to the district attorney's file prior to the post-conviction evidentiary hearing eight years later, and we discovered in that trial prosecutor's own handwriting, Richard Delasante, the, the Joe House witness, in habit of giving testimony. These were his pretrial notes. So when he asked that witness if he ever testified before, he, and he said no, he knew he was lying. And he had the evidence to prove it. And there's the prosecutorial misconduct. When I think it, it goes along, I think it was maybe Chiefy story where you ended up meeting with the detective, his handler, in air quotes. And I remember at first you met with a DA and the DA called yep. the handler and you heard right. this whole conversation on the phone. And then you met separately with this detective and said that he was asked him about being the handler for the snitch. And he's like, Oh no, there's no such thing as handlers. I, I mean, exactly. I think, I think it yeah. just goes along with how prevalent of an issue it is because it didn't even occur to this detective to be concerned about lying or that you may know because it must be something that happened quite frequently there. Even I think, when you were going back to the first hearing for him, the detective just walked in so easy breezy, no concerns until obviously he got yeah. in there and then, oh, yeah. then he had yeah. some concerns, but I think some, some major concerns. Yeah. yeah. And, and now let me just, I, 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 I got to give another example here because it's this woman. It's a woman. Ellen Reasonover was convicted of a, of a, of a murder in St. Louis. And she came a gas station attendant was was murdered in, in the in the back part of the gas station 
one, one late one night about around midnight. She pulled up to that gas station. She's an African-American woman. She pulled up to the gas station to get changed because she was doing the laundry at the local laundry mat. And she saw a black man in the cage. He saw her. And when she when she pulled up, he went out the side door, got in his car and left. So she thought he was closing for the night. She gets up the next morning and reads that at that time, uh, they found the white gas station attendant shot to death in the back room of the gas station. She comes forward and she tells the police in a little municipality in St. Louis County, she, she tells the police what she had seen and she tries to describe the man she saw in the cage, an African-American. What do they do? They arrest her with absolutely no evidence. Yep. And, and so now she's put in a local city jail. And while in that jail, a career female criminal comes forward and tells the police that she convict, that she confessed the crime. They indict her based on that jailhouse confession. Then they put her to county jail awaiting trial. Then they get another uh, in, the, in the county jail, they get a criminal uh, a criminal cellmate to say that Ellen confessed the crime. So now you have two jailhouse confessions. That's the sole basis of the trial. We come along 12, 15 years later, and again, we get access to the prosecutor's file, just like in De Los Santos. And what do we discover? This By this time, we've been denied throughout the state courts. We're in the federal district court in St. Louis. And what do we discover? The police, when Ellen was originally put in that first jail cell, in that city jail, they were taping, secretly taping, all the conversations that took place in that cell at that time. And we found that tape in the prosecutor's files. We played the tape, and all Ellen was doing was telling the other girls that she was innocent. She she doesn't know why she was arrested, and she was innocent. So... You know, I mean, this stuff drives you, drives you nuts. Yeah, that story, that one, I don't know, maybe me being a mom, that one, that story really broke my well, heart. Well, not only that, Beth, but Ellen Riesner came within one vote of the death Yes, day. yes. One vote. And as it turns out, thank God that that one person, that one juror, although voted for guilty, voted, I just couldn't give her the death penalty, and so she was given a life sentence instead. We came along years later. If that one juror had voted for death, Ellen would have been executed. Yep. Well, and let me ask the two of you this as more seasoned, more knowledgeable about the situation. Is there ever a scenario where informant tech or informant information is useful? I mean, could it ever be trustful? That's a good question. And, and if I so, why do we continue to allow it in the courts? Well, a, a lot of a lot of jurisdictions are not allowing it anymore. Orange County and Los Angeles—they don't allow it anymore because they've had, they've had humendous um, scandals yeah. of jailhouse confession testimony. Um, but I have to tell you, I have not, in my experience, and I've, 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 I've come across a lot of jailhouse confessions throughout the, uh, a number of our cases over the last forty years. I have not come across one jailhouse confession that wasn't false. My um, goodness. I haven't seen one that's legitimate in my 40-year experience. Well, and I bet you've reviewed thousands and thousands of well, cases, I too. I, 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 yeah, but not all of them had jailhouse confessions. Yeah, true. Before. Very true. But we, we've reviewed 
alive. Dozens and dozens, scores and scores of yes. cases that did, and not one such testimony is legitimate. Wow. Prosecutors know that. They're not dumb. They know that. Joyce Ann Brown was convicted based on a jailhouse confession. Uh, you know, it's just... Uh, Anyway, so, you know, the prosecutors, they hide ex the, pro the prosecutorial misconduct, they hide exculpatory evidence, they suborn perjury, they make secret deals with criminals. If you testify to such and such, um, we will uh, give you a non-custodial sentence. You won't have to go to jail. There's all kinds of uh, incentives uh, for people really to remember nice things. things. Yeah. In other words, in other words, the prosecutors... The, the jailhouse, the criminal witnesses for the prosecution, they they buy their freedom through false testimony. Yep. One other thing before we go into one another topic, one other thing I wanted to say that I find interesting um, when we talk about uh, law enforcement, um, off, officers, law enforcement officers um, are allowed to lie when performing their job. I mean, they're permitted to use false statements and misinformation. Uh, yep. Those are tools in their investigations and their, especially their interrogations. And the Supreme United States Supreme Court has um, blessed this. They've said, yeah, the cops can lie when, when they're doing their job. And uh, I find it interesting. I mean, I don't know any, um, I don't know, institution, whether it be uh, public sector or private sector, where they teach their people to lie. how to lie <laughs> and how to do it well. And that's part of law enforcement training. My goodness, they, they take Classified. effective dishonesty 101. And, uh, yeah. And, and that leads, and that leads, and we we see this often. That leads to false confessions. Oh, absolutely, by, absolutely, by an arrestee, because during the hours and hours of interrogation in a small windowless room, uh, where a suspect is is pulled off the street, put in this inter and then interrogated by the police. And the police tell this person over hour after hour that we have a uh, that um, we found DNA at the crime scene. The yep. DNA is your this. These are all lies that we found your DNA on the victim or inside the victim. We got your fingerprints at the crime scene. We've got your just, buddy in the next room spilling his guts. Yeah, or or your wife. We just interviewed your wife, and she says you're guilty. They're all lies. Now, Illinois, state of Illinois, give them credit. Just recently, they passed a law that prohibits police from lying to minor yes. suspects. Yes, there's a couple suspects other states that have done that. But have several states done that? But they should apply it to all, all, all um, suspects regardless of age i mean what profession do you go into where it's okay to lie i mean exactly. i know contrary to public opinion they do not teach that in law school <laughs> but, <laughs> you know well, no. but what profession jim is it okay to lie 
that's that's a good point. You're absolutely yeah. right. Except, yeah. except law enforcement. Yeah. Well, and I'll tag along with that. I was just having this conversation with my dear friend the other day who's been with me forever. Of course, I've grown up in the with a public defender mom, so I've had this in my brain my entire life. But she had absolutely no idea that that happened, that that could happen. And it's like, I try to tell people just because somebody is interrogated and they admit they did something, it doesn't necessarily mean anything because you never know what happened during that conversation. And you can't say if you were in the same situation and a detective is talking, well, we have your DNA, we have your footprints, we have somebody saying they saw you there, we have all this stuff pointing to you. You don't know what you would do in that scenario either. Well, that's right. People, people, well, first of all, um, I'm sure you guys know this, but I, I don't think your listeners do. That there are, I don't know, what's the number, the number of DNA exonerations in the United States, um, it's, it's getting close to 400. 25% of those men, I think they're mostly all men, 25% of the, the men who have been eventually been wrongly convicted and later, years later, exonerated by DNA evidence, 25% of them confess to the crime while being interrogated by the police. They confessed to something they didn't do. And people say, well, how could, how could that be? I would never, I would never. I would never like say that. Do. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sorry, folks, but you're not as courageous and strong as you think you are. Um, and if you're in some interrogation room and getting browbeaten by more than one police officer over a 10 or 15 hour period of time, you're going to reach the point which so many of them have done and admit to doing. I'm talking about the the arrestee. Oh, absolutely. I would, I would I would sign anything to get out of that room to have that stopped. Yep, I'll clear it up tomorrow. I'll get an attorney. I'll clear it yeah, up tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll reach. I'll, I'll admit. I'll tell people I, that I, I, you know, that that I testified, that I confessed, but I was I was lying just to get out of there. There's um, one particular exonerate here in Kansas who. I've become friends with, I consider him a friend and I'm sure he, it's mutual, but in his case, uh, he was told or yeah, basically just tell us you were there and you can go home. Right. You know, after hours of interrogation, no food, no water, just tell us you were there and we'll let you go home. And then he thinks, I got to get home and I'll straighten it all out in the morning. Yep. Right. Well, right. of course he right. didn't get to go home. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, Steve and Beth, in along these lines, a number of the defendants, the arrestees, who falsely confessed to terrible violent crimes that they had nothing to do with, there a lot of them are minors, teenagers. Or me- mentally, mentally disabled, intellectually disabled people. Um, you know, w- another quick example is that two men in North Carolina, one was 19, one was 15. Now this is ba- they were eventually exonerated based on DNA some 30 years after their conviction. They were they spent 30 years on North Carolina's death row based on their false confessions to these crimes. The crime was terrible. An 11-year-old girl was was raped and killed, and they confessed to the crime. Uh, But eventually, but as soon as they, soon after they confessed, they they told everybody who would listen, 
I didn't do this. I just told the police I did it. Anyway, 30 years later, DNA exonerated them. Not only did DNA exonerate them, it identified the real killer who was a serial rapist. Yeah. And these two men, these two men were teenagers and they were both intellectually uh, incapable. There were there was a real high-profile high case. I think it was um, the Central Park Five. Oh, the Central Park Five, absolutely. I it's think I, they, they were very, very young. Um, yes. And I believe, did that not also involve false confessions? Oh, well, that, that was based on false confessions, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that Netflix, I think it was Netflix, they, they did a great... Um, docudrama on that case yes they and did it was wonderful I would encourage i would encourage your your listeners if they care to to uh, go on netflix and look that up the central park five yes well, wonderful think, tragic story another prime yeah. example of that of being maybe mentally diminished and young would be brandon dassey with making a murderer too just yep. watching yep. his confession and just how it's fed to him the way it is i think that's pretty telling too yeah, and then, you know, not, not to uh, have, have your listeners' ears glaze over here, but there's a famous case in, in Norfolk, Virginia called the Norfolk Four. When the police got, uh, they they thought the, the uh, rape and murder was done by two men, when actually it was done by one man, again, a serial rapist. DNA later exonerated the Newark Four. But during the course of the investigation, the police just piled one suspect on top of another, to, coming up with seven different men participated in this, <laughs> and their 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 biological evidence contradicted the DNA evidence, and they still they still convicted them. Wow. I mean, you know, it's crazy. One it's more crazy. Th one more thing before we leave yeah. uh, false yeah. confession is yeah. I, I want to throw in the death penalty. Um, yes. I'm a very vocal advocate for uh, the abolition of the death penalty in Kansas. And uh, in my view and in my studies and in the readings I do, I think the death penalty, having the death penalty is a tool to obtain false confessions. Well, uh, it is a tool. But there are a lot of people on death row that uh, where where false confessions are not part of their of their conviction too. Yeah, but um, I think when they're interrogating them, they can say we will take death off the table. Yeah, if no, you tell true. us you did this because we've got your fingerprints, your DNA. Yeah, your mother's, <laughs> yeah, mother's everything you can imagine. We have other than you saying you did it. And if you tell us you did this. We'll take death off the table. So, yeah, now, but looking at the death penalty in general, uh, whether there's a false, whether there's death penalty related uh, or threat by the police or not, um, here's here's something I think your listeners will find interesting: that uh, since 1973 or 1976, when the death penalty was was uh, was reinstated. Um, Fifth, a little over 1,500 men and a few women have been executed. During that same time, there have been 185 people, mostly men, exonerated 
was set, uh, convicted and sentenced to death on death row, and then while on death row, exonerated as being actually innocent. So for every one of the 1,500 executed during those 45 years or so, there has been, uh, for every 10 executed or 11 executed, I should say, there's been one person exonerated. Now that's a pretty high rate of exoneration. Absolutely. And that, that's shocking. And so um, the death penalty has so many flaws to it. It's, it, it, it's uh, first of all, innocent people are wrongly convicted and, and sentenced to death. That happens often, as I just demonstrated through that uh, statistic. It's expensive as hell. You know, it's like, it's like building a huge factory, but uh, with a with a capacity of, you know, there's 2,600 people on death row now across the United States. Um, so the, the 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 death machinery has been has been constructed at great investment, um, but it's hardly ever used anymore. By the way, Kansas so it, Kansas it, 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 has the death penalty. And we haven't executed anyone since 1965. Well, there you go. That's yeah, a, and we are example. we are paying for yes. the death penalty and yes. not getting any results for that's for right. which I'm thankful. No one's getting executed, but still, all these people that Waters complain so much about budget issues. My gosh, let's abolish the death penalty. We'll save a lot of money. So you have this you have this huge factory of uh, with unlimited infinite capacity to kill and all the machinery set to do that when it's not being used. You know, like in 2000 and 2008, there were 85 executions in the United States last year. Last year, there were only 11. So even though states, I think what, what are there about 27 states uh, still have the death penalty, something like that, but they're not using it anymore because um, the, the prosecutions are recognizing there's some flaws to this and it creates all kinds of problems of these death sentences getting getting reversed and, and uh, uh, where the, the death row inmates, their cases are no longer death, but they're sentenced to life because of some, some constitutional flaws in the way the death penalty was, was secured. Um, that you know, rather than rather than go for death, uh, prosecutors are now going for life without parole, which jurors by and large support, and the public uh, supports. So, we, we the U.S. should dismantle every death row that exists in the United States because it's ineffectual, and by the way, it's 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 used disproportionately, significantly against people of color yes. versus those yes. in white. Um, you know, of, of the uh, of the 185 exonerations off, off of death row, over 50% were African-American, and they only constitute 13% of the population. Um, so it, it serves no real redeeming, and it certainly doesn't deter murders. Look at all the, look at all the murders occurring all across the United States. It's most especially in these large cities, yeah. they're skyrocketing. And a number of these states have the death penalty. It doesn't deter such crimes. Okay. Thank you. I agree. Let's, 
I want to talk a minute about uh, mistaken identification, mistaken yes. eyewitnesses. Yes. There's yes. there's some interesting uh, there's some interesting phenomena that goes around goes along with that. And uh, go ahead, Jim. Any comments about that? Well, yeah. Let me. Okay. All right. Now, first of all, you're absolutely right. Um, in the again, I, I could refer to um, our own. 40-year experience in Centurion Ministries I'm referring to, we freed 66 people, and 75% of those of those convictions, uh, a primary element for the prosecution was an eyewitness, saying that's the person, that defendant is the man I saw do the crime or flee from the crime scene as soon as right after right after it happened. Let me give you an example of that, and, and you might remember this from the book. I'm 38 years old. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I've been around the world. I'm not a I'm not a greenhorn. And I'm on my first day as a student chaplain at Trenton State Prison. First day. And I've never been to a prison before. And so I'm nervous. I'm scared. You hear all kinds of stories. And I'm wearing the collar, the priestly collar. I look just like a Catholic priest. And I get up to about the eighth cell. The, the African-American chaplain is introducing me to each inmate in his cell. This is your new seminarian student chaplain. He'll be visiting here two afternoons a week. And I get to the eighth cell, and this inmate just verbally, now I'm standing outside his <laughs> cell facing him. He's inside his cell. I can see him clear as day. And he starts verbally castigating and yelling and screaming and insulting me. Get the heck out. He used words I, I can't repeat here. <laughs> and finally, finally, and I, I'm just shook. I am shook. And oh, by the way, mirrors are coming out of the other cells so they can look down and see what <laughs> all the commotion is about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So finally, Joe Ravenel, the, the, the African-American chaplain, he says, Jim, why don't we take a break and get off the cell block? I thought that was a real good idea. <laughs> so we get off the cell block. And I said to Joe, I said, Joe, who was that black guy yelling at me like that? He said, what black guy? I said, the guy, the guy that was yelling at me. He says, Jim, that's Butch Layton. He's white. <laughs> I had the wrong, I had the wrong race, let alone the wrong face. And I'm bringing my racial prejudice and and baggage to that event, and I'm I'm looking, but I'm not seeing. I'm stunned. I'm traumatized. Yep. I'm scared. I don't know what I'm looking at. And I, but I was looking right at him. Now, can you imagine if the Trenton police took a statement from me that I described my verbal assaulter as a as an African American? I mean, so you know, I understand how unreliable eyewitness, and I wasn't being physically hurt. I wasn't witnessing a crime. I wasn't traumatized by witnessing a, an ex, a murder of any kind, or an armed robbery, or even a sexual assault. And I got the wrong race, let alone the wrong face. The point being that so often eyewitness testimony is, is really unreliable. And... and and I'm grateful, yeah. and I'm grateful that the courts recognize this to some degree here in Kansas, and I'm assuming in the other states as well. We have yeah. a cautionary instruction for the jury, 
in any case that involves eyewitness identification. And that instruction kind of implies to the jury, don't take it on its face. Let's exactly. look at some yes. other things. How yes. long did you see the individual? What was your emotional state? What was the lighting like? We have to consider all these others to before you can attach Any credibility rate, yes. or reliability to it. Yeah, and I think part of that, uh, isn't it another part of the, the cautionary uh, statement by the judge is be careful of cross-racial identification as well. And that's what leads, I have just recently uh, learned about cross-race uh, identification and uh, the more I read about it or since I have learned about it, I so wish the court would adopt instructions dealing with cross-race identification. I mean, there's been, as I understand it, there's been like 30 years of social science research that says a person of one race is is not good at identifying a person of another race. Uh, That's right, yeah. Dare I say, they all look alike. And I don't care what race you are. Right. The right. other race all look alike. And well, yep. we need to instruct. That's one thing I think we can do to address one. A small thing we can do to address this problem is to get the courts to adopt this cross-racial identification cautionary instruction. Well, another thing where the courts have really started to uh, mature and understand this development uh, or the unreliability of, of uh, the, the, the strong potential for the unreliability of eyewitness testimony is the courts have allowed the defense to bring in their own memory experts to explain to the jury how, uh, how identification can go wrong in terms of what the memory thinks it saw versus what it really saw. Yeah. Oh, how interesting. Uh, so, I did not experience so it's, 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 anything it's a, like that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really uh, sophisticated social science that has been, that has been developed uh, across the land by these eyewitness experts who have studied memory and how it affects um, eyewitness identification under uh, stressful situations. Um, so that's very important. And that will help by a lot. The, the, the courts have been allowing this in for a number of years now, at least in the in the, the jurisdictions we've we've come in, across. Um, and that, if the jury listens to these experts describe it and put cred, place credibility on their testimony and their expertise, this can help prevent wrongful convictions. Yep. Good. One yep. thing we haven't. Are we through with this one? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, there's okay, a lot. Let's, I was going to say, we could do a whole episode on each one. Yeah, we could do a whole uh, podcast series we could. on each one of one these. One thing we haven't touched on um, in this episode, although Beth and I have certainly done some profile cases where we dealt with this, and that's false or misleading forensic science. And uh, that gets into a lot of technicalities, but there's, there's so much 
well, it's come to be called junk science. There's so yeah. much junk science out there that is well, introduced into court and juries buy into it. Well, absolutely, because, you know, with all these CSI programs that are on television and have been for the last 10 or 15 years, the jurors, lay, lay people, uh, almost fully expect some kind of forensic science to be introduced that uh, incriminates the defendant. And they're always looking for that. Um, and so when a forensic person comes in and, you know, here are the different kinds of, of junk science that I think you're referring to that we have seen time in and time again. You have bite mark forensics. Yes. That's junk. It's highly unreliable and has convicted a lot of people, especially in the earlier part of, of uh, the, two, the, two, the 2000s and before. You have hair uh, analysis. Um, the, uh, you know, if they find strands of hair or fibers uh, on the victim, and they, they, they'll get somebody to come in and say, well, that, that hair that was on the victim matches the hair of the defendant. It's interesting. The FBI uh, produced a report in 2015. They reviewed 500 of their of FBI of cases where an FBI hair expert was used to testify on behalf of the prosecution in the state, one state or another. And uh, that th those that testimony played a significant part in convicting these people. This is prior to 2000 now where such testimony was lodged against the defendant. But then they took the DNA from those same cases years later, and the DNA demonstrated to the FBI, who I, I handed to them, they made public their report that in 96% of the cases in which their FBI hair expert identified the hair found on the victim as belonging to the defendant, 96% of those instances were wrong. Wow. <laughs> were oh wrong. my goodness, Jim. Yeah. 96%. 96%. And, and, and 35 of those cases, by the way, were death row cases. Nine of those 35 had died. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how many of the remaining cases were, were among the exonerated people off of death row. But it was devastating. It's Roger Coleman, um, Beth. Yep. Roger Coleman, the hair, uh, a hair found on the victim was was said to be from Roger, and that was that was erroneous testimony. Um, and so that helped put him on death row, and eventually uh, resulted in his execution. It's so you have all kinds of these forensic, um, these forensic kinds of uh, quote unquote science, which is really a gunshot, gunshot residue is another one. That yeah, is, and blood splatter. And blood splatter. I mean, it just goes on and on. But the point is, Beth and Steve, that the the um, the juries are looking for this kind of evidence, quote unquote, and uh, by and large, buy into it. They love to hear it. And I think that goes along with people not just being uninformed, but being misinformed by yes, yes. television. I mean, if you watch Dexter, obviously the blood's going to tell you who did it. Right. Well, and, and, and that leads me, I was going to mention an episode that Beth and I did where it wasn't so much junk science, it was blood work, and it was just 
sloppy. And right. uh, it was due to the forensic expert. Um, and and, a lot, and a lot it, friends, it was case after case yeah. after case with this particular expert, and all the prosecutors knew what was going on. And one prosecutor after another would would use the same quote unquote expert. Yeah, yep. a lot of yes. times, a lot of times you'll have you'll have regular police officers who do their twenty years and then they retire, so they go to some class to study blood spattering, and then now they're experts and they're. They're willing to tell the prosecution what they want to hear as a as a blood spattering expert, freshly minted. Yep. Uh, there, there, there's all kinds of abortions taking place within the criminal justice system that that just uh, result in in uh, erroneous convictions and it, 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 the system is. I, I believe now. This is my own personal opinion, and I can't I can't uh, I can't uh, demonstrate this through any kind of empirical data, but I believe that there are tens and tens of thousands of innocent people in prison. That it's far more common and systematic than we in the United States want to believe, that the public wants to believe. Yes, um, and that's, you know, that's as I, I mentioned I, I, last I, I, time, that's, that's one of our purposes here is to educate how well, I, I, systemic this is. It is systemic. Here's an example of this. Now, now this, this is... I haven't seen more recent statistics, but I think they're probably similar. In 2016, there were there were one. Now we only do state cases, since you're, we don't do federal cases. So I'm only talking about state convictions, county convictions in states. In 2016, in our state prisons across America, there were one million three hundred thousand state inmates. Okay. Now, of those one million three hundred thousand. 350,000 were doing life sentences for murder or sexual assault. That's, uh, you know, 350,000 or so. Uh, I believe, I believe that one out of 10 uh, are, I believe that 10% of those state inmates who are now in prison for murder or rape did not do what they're in there for, are innocent people. Um, and, you know, that's that's basically saying one out of 10 is 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 innocent, um, 10%. And what human, what human system is, that's giving the, the system a lot of credit, saying you're right nine out of 10 times. Um, and those aren't very good odds. And in... With, on on what planet is that okay? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Where would that be okay? <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, you just you just you just shake your head at this stuff. I you know. Well, I guess uh, I, f- I feel like for people it's okay because they're not that one person, and that's well, specifically yeah. what we're doing with this podcast. Because I mean, you don't have to be somebody engulfed in the criminal a criminal world underground to have this happen to you. It could happen to anybody. Our very first episode was Jimmy Gardner, a semi-professional baseball player that this happened to. I mean, uh-huh. wrongful convictions, they're not just for people that commit crimes or, or in it, the criminal field or have criminal it, backgrounds. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, we, uh, I just hope that your listeners, uh, I think it's important that they take seriously what we're saying tonight and give us, some degree of credibility in what we're 
saying and what our view and why we have such views, that when they become jurors, that they, they're now more informed jurors yep. and perhaps not as naive as they were before they're listening to your podcast. And maybe, just maybe, they might be more skeptical of the state's case than they were prone to before that. That's maybe, what I'm hoping for. Maybe we could pick a jury one week before the trial <laughs> and then send them to jury school. <laughs> oh, <Right. laughs> Yes. They, everybody yeah. would now, love Steve, that. To prepare Steve, them for the t- evidence. Steve, here's another thing, and you could speak to this, and, and I don't want to paint too broad a brush, but another reason for wrongful convictions, in my view, is pro-prosecution judges. And their evidentiary rulings so often, in these cases, go against the defendant. And uh, erroneously so. You mean, Uh, and that might include career prosecutors who retire and then become become judges. judges. Yeah, or or judges uh, were were prosecutors in their prior life for a number of years. And then they either appointed or elected to a judgeship. and, And they hit the bench with that. They hit the bench with that human bias. With that mentality. uh, Yep. Yeah. And yeah. when you're a public defender and you go before them to argue a case, you are told no, 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 no to all your motions. Right, exactly. That's that's what ha- that's what happens, and uh, that that's another that's another element that the, in the mix that, uh, in my view, is in a, in a number of cases can produce um, false convictions. I can feel my public defender mom virtually cheering you guys on from wherever she is right now based on this conversation. Just to add that note, I'm sure she'd have a lot to add to this too. Well, hopefully when the trial's over, she can she can relax and, and uh, listen to this. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Jim, I, we can't express our thanks to you for elevating our podcast to <laughs> what it is this <laughs> these last two episodes uh we're so indebted to you my friend well i don't feel indebted at all i th- i look upon it as first of all i just enjoy talking with you and beth uh, just as oh, people thank you um and it's, it's actually been fun and you get me riled up and i've been described <laughs> I, i've been described as a fast talking philadelphian so that's what i i guess that's what i that's what i am but um no, and I appreciate you, both of you guys, and Steve, you especially being on the bench and and uh, seeing what you now see and, and being be willing to, to speak up on it. Um, let me ask you this, Steve, before we go. Uh, do you have any sense that the state of Kansas might abolish the death penalty? Is that a possibility or, or not? We work on it every year. I introduced a bill to abolish it every year. I was in the legislature but the leadership in our legislature, the leadership yeah. is yeah. opposed to it. And when right. the leadership's opposed to it, it doesn't get a hearing. It doesn't yes. get to the floor for a vote and yeah. you can't do anything about it. And, uh, that's why I got to give a shout out to the Kansas coalition against the death penalty. Uh, right. you, you can find them at ksabolition.org. And on our uh, Cleared Facebook page, Cleared Podcast mm-hmm. is our Facebook page. 
uh, we're going to have a photo on there that addresses uh, some of these um, causes of wrong, wrongful convictions, and that comes from that organization. So a shout out to that organization. Man, we they just keep chipping away year after year after year, and yeah. uh, they're not giving how about, up. How about, how about the public in Kansas, the Kansas public? What do the polls indicate in terms of their favor or disfavor of capital punishment? It's in favor, those in favor of uh, abolishing the death penalty is growing. But I'm not sure that we've reached a majority yet. Right. But it's definitely growing. Yeah. Well, I think across the nation, you mentioned it earlier, across the nation, it's less and less and less executions. We're not using it as much anymore. No, we're not. In fact, the the rate of execution has precipitously dropped in the last 20 years, without a doubt. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Beth, anything else? I, I have one more question for you, Jim. Yeah. So yeah. I think, I can't remember the exact number, but you, you've you been retired for two, three years now. Is that true? Five years. Five, five years. God, COVID just screws me up yeah. with years these days. Right. So in your book, you indicated that you had a handful of cases that you were going to continue working yes. on. Yes, And yes. I think I listened to a podcast with you maybe last year where you were down to two or three. What's your number yes. now? Okay. Well, I, you know, I, I retired in 2015 from the day-to-day management of Centurion. I, I did that for 35 years, and, and that was that was enough, and I handed it over to my longtime colleague, Kate Germont. Um, but even though I retired from the day-to-day management, I kept seven of the cases that I had been working on for a number of years. During the last five or six years of those seven cases, six are freed, and I have one left. Wow. Wow. That's, that, that's thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do, buddy. Well, not just me, but, you know, it's a team of people. Uh, but those are the cases that I was primary on. And along with our attorney, uh, Paul Castellaro, and some other attorneys across the country. Uh, so I got one left. And right now we're, we're trying to, uh, we're having conversations with the St. Louis City Prosecutor's Conviction Integrity Unit, to, actually with the prosecutor, Kim Gardner, to try and convince her that, um, uh, Federico Lobay is an innocent man. So he's been in prison for 33 years. And Ugh. that's, that's my, that's my last case. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for what you do. Well, thank you for what you guys are doing. You're, you're shedding the light on a dark place and it's important for you to do that. Yeah. Thank you. We're trying. And, yeah, right. and for everybody that's listening, Jim's thrown in some of the stories from his book, just in the conversation we've had here. And I, once again, I just want to encourage everybody. When I was reading your book, I had to just keep in my mind, this is one person, because it seems like you have lived a thousand different lives. It is such a good book. Uh, I encourage everybody to go out and read it when the truth is all you have. Again, Audible, Amazon, everywhere you can find it. It's awesome. Yeah. And they they also can get a paperback. The paperback came out just this past July. Oh. Good to know. So paperback, paperback is available as well. When truth is all you have, and when no you, article before truth. And right? what? And when you finish that book, the John Gresham wrote yeah. the Guardians. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay. And if and, and that, by the way, that John John Gresham, the Guardians, not that it's based on our work, which, which it kind of is, but he includes a lot of the elements that you and I that we've been talking about tonight. All right. Yes. Even though yes. It's, even though it's fictional, it's a fictional account. 
it's really real life stuff. Yeah. Anybody who's a fan of John Grisham knows it's all fact-based. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You bet. Yep. All right, sir. Thank all you. Right. Thank you so much for everybody listening. Thank you, Jim McCloskey, for being a part of this. Once again, you can find his book, When Truth is All You Have. Paperback just became available this year. And also check out centurion.org to find more about Centurion Ministries. You can find us on Cleared Pod on Instagram or Cleared Podcast on Facebook. Please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Assault City Sound Production.